Lecture 13, Part 3 of The Endowments of Man by William Bernard Ullathorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lecture 13, The Regeneration of Man, Part 3. Christianity consists more in actions than in words. The object of teaching is to bring us to action, and external action is but the expression of internal action. Can there be anything more striking to mortal sense, or healing to human sensuality, than to look with the eyes of faith upon the sufferings and death of Christ? What can be more purifying to our senses than to contemplate that agony in which the Son of God suffers in innocence as a penitent for our sins? What more destructive to our pride than his humiliations before the courts of Jerusalem? There we see the value of this world's judgments when it speaks in the cause of God there we see the god of truth and justice condemned to death to be even put out of this world because he troubles the pride of life what can be more corrective to the unclean passions of our nature than to behold the son of god denuded to the cruel scourge pilate declared him innocent and then gave him up to be lacerated and torn in body and in soul and Christ submits to atone for our sensualities. What can more effectively open our heart to Christ with repentance than to look upon the divine victim for our sins and healer of our sorrows as crowned with thorns, and with the cross upon his shoulders he moves on his dreary way to Mount Calvary, where extended on the cross and fastened with nails to its wood, and lifted up by human malignity unto a divine sacrifice, he bleeds for us, suffers the extremes of anguish for us, prays for us, and pardons us, dies to give us life, and reconciles the world that crucifies him to God and the Father. It is your mortal eyes that bring your spirit to see, your mortal ears that bring your soul to listen, and your heart to know this man, this God, this priest, this victim, torn and rent for the destruction of your concupiscence, this blood of God shed for the cleansing of your sins, this fountain of life and grace expended for your use and service this sermon of sermons, this truth of truths, enacted before your eyes, and appealing through every mortal sense and feeling to your immortal soul. It is a spectacle that subdues every petulant passion and conceit into awe and silence, fills your whole being with the sense of how God has loved you and given himself for you and brings down the whole pride of life into humble fear and faith and gratitude. Then the charity of Christ falls upon us like fire, and our hearts are constrained to acknowledge that as Christ died for us, we ought not to live to ourselves, 
but for him who died for us and rose for our justification then we understand how we ought to mortify our earthly members that christ may reign in our mortal body then we can comprehend how the old things ought to pass away that we may become a new creature in christ blind is every one and blind with pride who cannot see that the whole intent of the divine incarnation is to take hold of us bodily as well as spiritually and to bring the whole man under subjection to the rule of the son of god blind is he who does not see the condition of his own nature and that the great obstacle to his bringing his spirit to the spirit of god is the opposition of his carnal to his spiritual nature and that it is through the conquering of his senses that the mind and heart are conquered to the light and grace of god the first design for the happiness of man was to make one kingdom of the human family all being united in truth and charity both with their creator and with each other they were therefore created in corporate unity in one father and from one flesh and blood whereby all men were cemented into one common and natural brotherhood and were intended to be united with god and with each other through one common light of faith and by the heavenly gift of charity but this great design for the securing of human happiness was broken and destroyed by man himself sin entered into him and with sin the loss of the principle of union and division took place within the man and broke forth and filled the world with contentions enmities hatreds and rivalries the restoration of man would therefore be very incomplete were it not a corporate as well as a personal restoration were it not that unity of brotherhood re-established in christ which sin had destroyed by the fall of adam this was the great work of the son of god he established his kingdom or church in which those who were no longer united in the blood of adam were united in his blood so that they who were before divided in soul were reunited together in his truth and grace this is that kingdom of god which the prophet daniel saw in vision with the kingdoms of the earth falling down before it the king of babylon was a stone cut out of a mountain without hands this stone is christ of whom saint peter says the stone which the builders rejected the same is made the head of the corner then the stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth and this is the prophet's interpretation of the vision in the days of those kingdoms the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed and his kingdom shall not be delivered up to another people and it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and itself shall stand for ever this universal inalienable and everlasting kingdom has ever been regarded as the kingdom of christ 
nor can it be any other the prophet marked out the very time and the conditions of its appearance in the world to secure the unity life and perpetuity of this kingdom christ gave to it a divine and a fourfold power this fourfold power was received from him as the king the priest the teacher and the saviour of mankind the first power christ gives to his kingdom is government invested in a priesthood derived from his own he centres this government in one as the secure foundation of its unity and gives to that one the keys of power and the command to feed his whole flock as the shepherd of men he establishes that one as a rock and gives his strength to that rock to sustain the whole building of the church having given his kingly power to one the apostolic authority which he had first concentrated in that one he distributes to the twelve but their apostolate expires with them and the sacerdotal and pastoral powers continues with their successors but the apostleship continues to the end of time in the succession of the one in whom it was first concentrated then the divine founder of the church establishes a second order of clergy cooperating with the first in the seventy-two disciples having provided for the government of his kingdom he deposits with that government his eternal truth with authority and command to teach that truth to all nations and with the promise to be with the teachers whom he has appointed and to keep them in all truth to the end of time he thus gives to all men of good will the certainty and security as to where they may find his authority and where they may obtain his truth in the hands of that authorized priesthood he also ordains his sacraments the visible and most certain channels of his invisible grace for the cleansing the sanctifying and the consecrating of human nature he also institutes a divine worship in his own divine sacrifice to be the great and the perpetual centre of all worship in this sacrifice christ himself is still the sovereign priest still the sacred victim not another sacrifice but always the same that was offered on the cross as that sacrifice is always offered for mankind in heaven above so it is offered on the earth beneath by christ himself through the hands of his appointed ministers he thus fulfills his promise through the last of his prophets that from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof my name is great among the gentiles and in every place there is sacrifice and there is offered to my name a clean oblation the eucharistic sacrifice and sacrament the sublimest communication between heaven and earth the greatest of god's gifts to man is the extension through time of the divine incarnation what is commenced in the sacrament of regeneration is completed in the eucharistic sacrament 
the first of these sacraments brings the child of adam into the mystical body of christ the second perfects his union with christ in the partaking of his very body and blood filled with spirit and life and by this access to the spring of grace and truth he obtains more than ever he lost in the tree of life in all the communications of god with man there are divine and even infinite reservations into which we neither can nor ought to penetrate beyond the veil of faith god reveals not his majesty he gives us no approach to his sacred privacy he withholds us from the splendor of his insufferable light and burning glory we cannot see god with our mortal eyes or with our spiritual eyes there is no proportion between them and the unspeakable vision of god until after our probation is over they shall be prepared for their measure of beatitude yet the just soul often feels the tempered influence of the eternal presence the word incarnate was seen by mortal eyes yet in a human way so that faith alone discovered that he was the son of god once alone to chosen witnesses he appeared in effulgent glory which overwhelmed their sense and soul so that they could not continue to look upon him after he arose from the dead he was seen often and by many yet in a way that was toned to their ordinary senses until the crowd of witnesses beheld his ascent to heaven in all these revelations of the son of god there were infinite reservations but his eucharistic presence is preeminently the mystery of faith and the reward of faith even his sacrificed humanity is presented under veils the external qualities of bread and wine remain to form those veils whilst the substance is changed into his body and blood in virtue of his own creative words faith penetrates those veils with love whilst unbelief is turned away the substance of things is the object of human intelligence but not of human sense god alone has the perfect knowledge and view of substance this again is a divine reservation substance is that secret force or energy which sustains the qualities presented to the senses from the qualities in the ordinary course of nature we infer the substance but in the eucharistic sacrament whilst the qualities remain the substance is changed and the qualities veil the substantial presence of the body and blood of christ the reality is concealed from the sensual man whilst it exercises the faith of the spiritual man for faith is the fundamental condition of spiritual life in this world of probation as the presence of the eternal word who is in the world though the world knows him not is veiled from us by the whole creation so the presence of his body and blood is veiled as in a mystery that it may not be seen except by faith pride is ever curious and restless to know everything before its time 
patient humility is content to await the hour when god shall reveal all things pride which would command all things turns with averted eyes from the evidence that rests on divine authority but the divine mysteries are ordained for humble souls whose subjection to god is the preparation for the reception of eternal things there is even a divinely benignant consideration for our human weakness in this veiling of the heavenly mysteries which the greek father theophylact has expressed in these terms that we may not hold back with fear at the sight of the body and blood upon the holy tables of our churches god condescends to our weakness infuses the power of life into the oblations and the energy of his blood what a scene was that in the synagogue at capernaum whose walls have recently been brought again to light it is recorded in the sixth chapter of st john the multitude who had eaten the miraculous bread the day before followed our lord across the lake in their boats jesus said to them i am the living bread which came down from heaven if any man eat of this bread he shall live for ever and the bread that i will give is my flesh for the life of the world the jews therefore debated among themselves saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat clear proof is this how well they understood his words they knew not that he was the son of god nor did they know how his flesh was to be eaten but they had no doubt of his having declared that his flesh was to be eaten then jesus said to them amen amen i say unto you except you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you shall not have life in you he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life and i will raise him up at the last day for my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood abideth in me and i in him as the living father hath sent me and i live by the father so he that eateth me the same also shall live by me this is the bread that came down from heaven this most clear emphatic unmistakable and often repeated declaration literally staggered his audience now mark the result there could not be nor was there any doubt as to his meaning the difficulty was to believe what was so new and strange many therefore of his disciples hearing it said this saying is hard and who can hear it but jesus knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at this said to them does this scandalize you if then you shall see the son of man ascend up where he was before it is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh profiteth nothing the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and life but there are some of you that believe not they thought of eating his dead body like ordinary food 
whilst he spoke of his living and life-giving body yet he points to this once more what if you saw me ascend to heaven where i was before he then explains that the flesh is nothing without the spirit of life and that their fleshly views will not help them to accept his words without faith now mark the final result after this many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him they went away because they could not believe that they must eat his flesh and blood then jesus said to the twelve will you also go away and simon peter answered him lord to whom shall we go thou hast the words of eternal life and we believe and have known that thou art the christ the son of god the apostles understood not how this was to be more than the multitude but they believed he would fulfill what he said because he is the son of god we may imagine the impression left on the minds of the apostles by these plain but mysterious words and by this extraordinary scene how often must they have recalled it how often they must have talked it over and have wondered how this promise was to be fulfilled but at the last supper their eyes were suddenly opened and they knew how they were to partake of his body and blood why should it be thought incredible that christ should give us his flesh and blood there are only two impossibilities in the question and they both vanish the moment we take a comprehensive view of human nature the first is the very changing of the substance of bread and wine into christ's flesh and blood the second is the multiplication of that body and blood according to the multiplication of them who partake as to the first question how can we refuse to the second adam who is both god and man what we must allow to the first adam and to every one of his descendants how does man grow from birth to maturity how does he maintain his strength but by a natural process of transubstantiation he is constantly changing the substance of meat and drink into the substance of his body and blood we may call this process a natural miracle for it is certainly most mysterious how does life take hold of these dead substances animate them for a time and then let go of them if the living body and blood of the natural man are formed and grow and are strengthened by this natural process of transubstantiation how can we deny to the divine and supernatural man the power to exercise a divine transubstantiation the first is according to the power of man the second is according to the power of god the natural man takes bread and ceasing to be bread it becomes his flesh and blood christ the son of god takes bread and says this is my body and it becomes his flesh and blood and in like manner he takes wine and says this is my blood which shall be shed for you 
and it becomes his blood inseparable from his body. The bread and wine are separately consecrated to represent the separation of his blood from his body in his sacrifice. But as his blood was resumed to his body in the resurrection, and he liveth forever, there is henceforth no separation of his blood from his body, or of his spirit and life from both. And it is his spirit and life that profit us. The fathers of the church compare this change, this transmutation, this transubstantiation of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ with the change of water into wine at Cana, with the changing of the rod of Aaron into a serpent, with the changing of the waters of the Nile into blood, with the sweeting of the bitter waters of Marah, with the conversion of food into the substance of the body, and with the change of earth and water into the substance of plants. What we have here said was well summed up in the comment of Theophylact on the sixth chapter of St. John. Observe, he says, that the bread eaten by us is not a mere figure of the Lord's flesh, but it is the very flesh of the Lord. For he did not say, The bread which I gave you is the figure of my flesh, but he said, It is my flesh. This bread is transformed by the secret words through the mystical benediction and the coming of the Holy Spirit into the flesh of the Lord. Nor let it disturb anyone that the bread must be believed to be flesh, for even whilst the Lord walked in the flesh and received nourishment from bread, that bread which he ate was changed into his body and became like his sacred flesh and contributed after the human manner to the increase and support thereof. Therefore, now also the bread is changed into the flesh of the Lord. The second difficulty is the multiplied participation of the body and blood of Christ. Yet what are we all but the multiplication of the body of Adam? What if, as after the deluge, the human family were again reduced to one parental stock? Who can doubt but that from one man the earth might be again repeopled? How is the body of Adam multiplied into the great human family, except that it obtains its power to multiply by the transubstantiation of food into corporal life? If the first man can be thus multiplied, if every man can be thus multiplied, how is it that the perfect man, the God-man, whose work it is to restore all men, cannot equally multiply the communication of his body by another mode of transubstantiation, not unlike the first. It must be ever remembered that Christ is the fountain of our new and regenerated humanity, as Adam was of the old humanity, and that from Christ as the head, life flows into the members. The Holy Communion is the consummation of what is begun in baptism, since by it the old man is more and more transferred into the new man. 
at last therefore as the old adam becomes regenerated after being multiplied in the body of evil so fast does the new adam multiply the communication of the body of grace and life that we may enter into his life through his sacramentalized body may partake of the vital principle of the resurrection from the dead and live by christ as he lives by the father but the holy eucharist is more than this it is a sacrifice in the act of becoming a sacrament the sacrifice of the lamb prefigured the sacrifice of christ from the days of abel until the last supper our lord then celebrated that figurative sacrifice himself for the last time immediately after which he established his own so that there has been no interruption of the sacrifice of the lamb from abel until our day except that at the last supper the figurative gave place to the true lamb of god the shadow disappeared before the substance he took bread and giving thanks he broke and said take ye and eat this is my body which shall be delivered for you this do for the commemoration of me in like manner also the cup after he had supped saying this chalice is the new testament in my blood this do ye as often as you shall drink for the commemoration of me for as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this chalice you shall show the death of the lord until he come observe that christ not only delivered to the apostles the mysteries of his body and blood but that he spoke of it as his body delivered for us the greek and syriac texts say my body that shall be broken for you on which saint chrysostom says the breaking of the body in the sacrament expresses the breaking and suffering on the cross in like manner elsewhere christ says this is the cup of my blood which shall be shed for many unto the remission of sins but the body broken and offered for us the blood shed for the remission of our sins constitute the sacrifice of christ christ therefore celebrated his sacrifice at the last supper and commanded its celebration to all future times st paul says that he offered himself once for ever which signifies that the one offering is continued for ever yet is always the one and same offering that was made upon the cross and st john beholds the lamb upon the golden altar in heaven standing as it were for ever slain he beholds the divine victim in a perpetual state of sacrifice again st paul compares the sacrificed blood of christ with the blood of the old victims of the tabernacle and the temple which sanctified all that it touched and was carried yearly through the veil into the holy of holies whilst christ carries his blood into the holy heavens by a new and living way which he hath dedicated through the veil his flesh 
as a high priest over the house of god the apostle therefore says in another place we have an altar of which they who serve the tabernacle do not partake it is not another sacrifice but the same that was offered on calvary offered on calvary with the real shedding of blood offered on our altars with the representative and commemorative shedding of that blood which is accomplished by the separate and distinct consecration of his body and of his blood the one in the form of bread the other in the form of wine but whilst this double consecration and communion is essential for the priest who offers the sacrifice in the power of christ and as his minister yet as christ is no longer dead but liveth for ever he is not divided and therefore whoever receives under one kind receives the body and blood the life and spirit of christ here then is the centre of all christian worship in which the fruits of the oblation on the cross are plentifully received the mass is not a mere prayer although the sublimest of all prayers not a mere instruction although the divinest of instructions the mass is a divine action in which the priest represents christ and in which christ presents his immolation to god for man as he sits in his sacrificed but glorious body at the right hand of god making perpetual intercession for us in the same body upon our altars he makes intercession for us the sacrifice of the altar is not only the most sacred but it is the freest of all forms of worship for whilst the priest performs the sacrificial action according to the sacred rite the people who assist follow each their own devotion and are not tied to the words and actions of the priest as mary and john stood by the cross and beheld the lord crucified and heard his supplications to the father for our pardon reconciliation and peace so each one has his own light his own feelings his own devotion his own mode of view his own spirit his own way of prayer and inspiration of heart his own fruit of grace through the sacrifice of our lord at whose renewal he assists when saint john saw his vision of heaven he beheld it in that order in which the church on earth assists at the holy sacrifice yet transformed with glory and blessed with the open vision of her mysteries he beholds the throne of god and before the throne the golden altar and upon the altar the seven golden candlesticks and behind the altar one like to the son of god in a white garment and a girdle of gold for he is the bishop of souls beneath the altar are the souls of the martyrs slain for the testimony by the altar is the book of mysteries upon the altar stands the lamb as it were for ever slain around the altar are the seats of the twenty-four presbyters who assist the sacrificing bishop who is like to the son of god and there stand the great congregation of saints 
in their several orders and ranks the martyrs the virgins the confessors of the faith and the vast multitude and they sing the canticle of god and the lamb the lamb that was slain is worthy to receive power and divinity and wisdom and strength and glory and benediction and to the lamb when as at the sacrifice he opens the book of mysteries they sing thou art worthy o lord to take the book and to open the seals thereof because thou wast slain and hast redeemed us in thy blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and hast made us to our god a kingdom and priests and we shall reign upon the earth this is the kingdom of god the kingdom of christ in heaven is the transformation of the kingdom of christ on earth on earth he reigns over his own in the word of truth and in his eucharistic presence in heaven he reigns in the open light of truth for there is no sun or moon but the lamb is the light thereof and he reigns in his open presence where all the blessed behold him in the glory of his godhead and in the full stature of his glorious manhood from which every saint has received the fruits of his redemption and has drunk from it as the fountain of immortal life here then we reach the full measure of man's dignity the perfect man as saint paul tells us is he who has reached the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ end of lecture thirteen part three